Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Tonight's first Lambda Lit Fest panel, Trumpocalypse, Can Writing Books Help Save a Seriously Fucked World? <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> um, our moderator is Meredith Marin. She is the author of The New Old Me, Why We Write, a dozen other nonfiction books, and an acclaimed novel. She writes features, op-eds, essays, and book reviews for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Christian Science Monitor, the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Rumpus, and Salon. A freelance book editor described by Anne Lamott as the absolute best in the biz. Meredith has been a writer in residence at UCLA and several artist colonies, including McDowell and Yaddo. A member of the National Book Critics Circle and a passionate proponent of independent presses, bookstores, and thought, Meredith lives in an historic bungalow in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. Uh, and Corey's going to add a note about the Lambda Lit Fest. <laughs> hey, hi. How's everyone? Woohoo! Yeah, I got excited. Okay, that's good. No, I'm Corey Roskin. I'm with the um, Lambda Lit Fest. Lambda Lit Fest is part of Lambda Literary, which is a national uh, LGBTQ literary organization. Does all sorts of stuff. Um, the Lit Fest uh, has been going on all week. Uh, we'll culminate tomorrow with an event in West Hollywood at Plummer Park with Patrice Cullors, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, talking about uh, her book. And it's going to be a podcast with the LA Review of Books. It's a free event. So if you're interested, check out Lambda Lit Fest, and the details are on there at Sparrow Night at 6. Um, I'm excited that this event is happening, and we've had events all week. It's been great, and uh, I'm going to let them go from here. So thanks for being here. Check out Lambda Lit Fest. Bye. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, thank you, Corey. Thanks, Skylight. Love Skylight Books. Um, so I think the title of the panel speaks for itself, and uh, so do these fabulous big mouth authors and editor. Um, so I'll, I'll introduce each of the panelists, and then I'm going to ask each one of them a custom-designed, artisan, gluten-free question, and, um, and then we'll have some conversation. So thanks for coming out, so to speak. Um, Cindy Shupak <laughs> is, uh, is the person I want to be when I grow up. She has won two Emmys and three Golden Globes as a TV writer and producer whose credits include, wait for it, all my favorite shows, In Descending Order, Divorce, Better Things, Hello, Modern Family, and Everybody Loves Raymond, I'm Dying Up Here. Is anybody watching that these days? Woo! We love that show. And... Sex in the fucking city! <laughs> um, and um, she directed her first feature this summer in New York, a story about mothers and their adult sons. I wouldn't know anything about that, called Otherhood. And she's the author of two comic memoirs. She's portraying a homosexual tonight for our pleasure. <laughs> and <laughs> um, the bestseller, New York Times bestseller is The Between Boyfriends Book, a collection of cautiously hopeful essays and The Longest Date, Life as a Wife, which I can personally vouch for. It's a fabulous book. Um, Daniel Smetanka, the... Um, representing the male gender, a very brave task given the times, also known on Twitter as Stormy Daniel. Um, he, he's known to... He's, okay, this is true too, but you won't, you won't agree. Every writer who's ever worked with Dan says he is their best editor ever. Would you agree? I would. Okay. <laughs> and he's worked in the publishing industry for 25 years, first as executive editor at Ballantine Random House, and currently the president of Vice, executive editor for Counterpoint Press, where he edits, edits such literary superstars as Natasha and me. Um, Melissa Chadburn, my bud. She's written for the New York Times Book Review and all that. 
BuzzFeed, Poets and Writers, American Public Media's Marketplace, and dozens of other places. She's a contributing editor for the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and editor-at-large for Dame Magazine. Is that even still true? Sort of, kind of. She's loosely tied to Dame Magazine. Her debut novel, which I can only imagine is going to be incredible, is called A Tiny Upward Shove, and it's forthcoming from Farrar Strauss-Giroux. Cannot wait. <laughs> Natasha Dion is a 2017 NAACP Image Award nominee, author of the critically acclaimed novel Grace, which earned a gajillion awards, far too many to name, <laughs> and uh, was also named Grace, what? Three star speak, speak up now, <laughs> I'm gonna have to separate you two. <laughs> Three star what? Three starred pre-publication reviews, among many, many other awards and honors. Um, she's a, also in her spare time a practicing criminal attorney, a law professor, a UCLA creative writing professor, the mother of two, and a scientist who has secretly created and lives in the 48-hour day. <laughs> <laughs> There's no other explanation for it, Natasha. <laughs> okay, so Cindy, I'm gonna start with you. We're going in alphabetical order here. Um, as a TV writer, can you talk about how your approach to writing for popular TV in the age of Trumpocalypse. Um, just tell how that has affected your, your work and whether TV, in your opinion, has a different sense of social responsibility from books. I'm so Start glad, anywhere. I'm so glad you asked about TV because I was like, oh, I'm going to have to ask my friends what books are saving them from. I only <laughs> read things that might need to be adapted. Or, but um, I, well, I feel like maybe you all feel this way that it's been interesting to figure out if TV is escapism or if you really want to like wallow in it. Because sometimes, like I, when people say they're afraid to watch The Handmaid's Tale, I almost want to slap them because it's like, well, we're watching it, so. <laughs> I mean, I love the show, and I feel like it's been kind of scary but healing and brave that they're doing something like that. So I've been admiring shows like that, but then I also really feel like I want the escape. And not just escape, I want kind of the reassurance of just our humanity. And that's what I've always enjoyed writing is just kind of the extraordinary ordinary, and I find that even more what I want to do right now, just kind of reassure what's what we have in common what i thought we had in common and what we hopefully still have in common like our just our basic i mean the thing about sex in the city when it I, well i grew up in oklahoma i never thought like this show very specific new york um and i joined it the second season and then was there to the end but it, it spoke to women in so many cultures and was so bonding for me when i traveled that just the themes of friendship and love and they're so universal so i feel like my job as a writer is still to do things that feel universal and reassuring and hopeful. I'm kind of the last hopeful writer <laughs> I think in television. I really don't want to do jaded things. And I have a seven-year-old, and we watch a lot of animated films, and I feel like those are that's one of the last kind of unapologetic places that has heart, and you can be earnest, and you can be sweet, and it can teach you something. And so I'm really interested in writing that kind of thing right now. But I'm interested in watching, you know, like bring it on. What what do you got? <laughs> Take it. Well, for example, with better things, just to name that one, with better things, um, how or divorce? How do you feel that that relates to the cultural collision with the hideousness? The now, yeah. um, well. I really can't take like a lot of credit. There's a, there's a new thing in television called mini rooms, and they have like a <laughs> mini room to break the season, and that's what I did on divorce the first season, and then that's better things. I was there for the beginning, and like wrote an episode. But I know Pam Adlon. I mean, I feel like there's these brave, uh, at least for better things. There's a lot of shows that are brave, um, first person, really personal actor, director, writer visions and there's a little more room for that and now with like Netflix and other platforms it's not I mean broadcast truly was broadcasting so they were trying to reach the same audience that was mostly probably white men or boys and now there's kind of room for a lot more voices and better things was I think a, a, a part of that and divorce uh, 
I mean, I didn't really work on long enough to be able to speak to, but I feel like the the best stuff right now is um, just the fact that we, the, the like a woman like Pam Avalon, a single mom who has kind of a unique voice, is able to tell her story and speak her truth and have, put this other perspective out there. Mm-hmm. Smilf like, helped out a little bit, Frankie Shaw, and there's just, some, I feel like people are doing more, there's more room for that dissent and it finds its audience. But I don't know, the, the downside, I guess, is that it's not necessarily speaking to the broad audience. Like the guy who created Blackish went to Netflix because they didn't let him do this anti-Trump piece that he oh, wanted really? to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so as much as they were sort of outside the box and doing a new, a, a cool view of like issues, there was still a limit because it was network TV and there were advertisers and ABC was being bought by Murdoch or something stupid. So there's still a bit of censorship. And so you can still say what you want, but maybe to a smaller group of people who mm-hmm. maybe already <laughs> believe it. <laughs> Unless you do an animated movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dan, darling, turning to you. So has the Trumpocalypse affected what kind of books you were looking to buy? For example, Natasha's second novel, which you just acquired. No. Um, but again, I have the benefit of being at Counterpoint, which is an independent press, uh, one of the largest in the country and one of the most progressive press and has been for 23 or whatever years. So similar to broadcast TV, maybe if I was at a very large corporate environment, I would have a different answer to that question. But seeing as we're, you know, kind of part of the indie world, um, we have a bit more, uh, we've always had a bit more creative flexibility. So book selling in the Trumpocalypse is very difficult. Thank you for coming. <laughs> um, uh, and and so how you know how I, because I, I'm I'm the business bridge between the incredible writers and then the incredible readers. So um, how we have to navigate that gets difficult and tricky, um, but it doesn't affect what we are always ultimately looking for, which is new, provocative, interesting, amazing writers. Um, I had a book. Um, called Breakthrough, uh, the making of the first female president that was on sale uh, in the spring of 2016. That was a tough one. Um, you know, if any of you uh, Twitter followers uh, are, are following Jared Yates Sexton, he's a political journalist and was one of the first to sneak into a Trump rally in the summer of 2016 and tweet out what was really happening there. And he kind of exploded, uh, and we did his, I did his first book, we have a second one coming in the spring. So you're attuned in, in that way, but again, there's always been a very kind of strong progressive beat. Well, when you say that it's selling books in Trumpocalypse is hard, what, what do you experience as the difference? Uh, I think the news cycle is, is making mm. everyone crazy. I mean, obviously it's making you crazy. Uh, it's sucking all the oxygen out of the room. It's harder and harder to get attention for any kind of book in any sort of media um, when everyone is so tuned in uh, to all this other stuff going on. Um, the, the, the art of publishing a book is like scaling a wall. There's, there's constantly this wall of cultural noise around us all the time. Um, whether or not we're attuned to it, you know, probably different people to varying degrees. Um, you add this kind of noise. Uh, and it, it, it becomes infinitely hard, hmm. infinitely hard. So sort of along the lines of what Cindy was saying, do you feel like there's more or less room or interest in an uplifting, hopeful, kind of every person story than there was before? Are people looking more for political stuff or are they, they we, Us. fried, you know? what? Yeah, I get it. there's always been room on the shelf for both. I think, um, you know, looking between now and kind of next summer, I'm a little fatigued with some of the political conversation. Um, and some of, I, I feel we've explored all of these ideas. And it's like, you know, are you going to admire your shoes when you're in quicksand up to your neck? <laughs> no. Okay, so we've done that. And we're in a different place now. So, you know. Let, you know, I'll hold, I'll hold the gas cans. You know, like it's, it, I think we're literally at the point now where what's going to be as provocative and shocking is what we're seeing on the news every night. 
okay? So if that's kind of the world we live in, I can see people, but I think people have always wanted that kind of great escapist novel, whether it's historical or romantic or current or you know something that presents uh, a universal story um, in an interesting way um, because ultimately that reminds us that there are still universal stories. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know there are common bonds of humanity still? Because I forgot that on the drive here. So I think, I, I think there's always going to be that and it's a great joy for some, a novel like Grace, you know, which still speaks to me, which I still think about all the time. Um, and you have, you know, we hear from readers all the time about those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely, that's a cornerstone of a, of a publishing list, but it's a cornerstone of humanity, too. Hmm. Doesn't he speak well? Yeah. <laughs> I'm really surprised. <laughs> so, Melissa, you're up next. Okay. Um, and you, I'd like you to explain a little bit about the kind of journalism that you do, and then also say how it's been affected by the last two years of America. Uh, okay, well, I mean, mostly my beat is um, on the child welfare system. I grew up in the child welfare system, um, if I had to have a beat, but I also write about, um, I write about class a lot. I'm really passionate about um, class diversity in publishing. I think that the publishing landscape is um, not uh, as diverse as it could be, and so I help um, also edit and place uh, people who are experiencing economic hardship in top-tier journals. And how is the Trump I don't know. See, I come from the mind frame that um, there's all, I've always known that there's, there's like some fucked up shit going on all the time, and I'd rather be witness to it. Um, and so that's always been, so I, people are like, how can you write about that stuff? But it's like, how could I not? I want to know what's going down. Like, I'd rather know than not know. Um, and, um, but you know, I'd, I'd written this piece, so I'd written this piece kind of recently about um, this literary grifter, we were joking, <laughs> um, in the LA Times, and uh, I'd written this piece about this literary grifter for the LA Times, and everybody, it was like such a saucy story, everybody was like, oh wow, I love you know this grifter story, and I got all these reports, like my email was just flooded with other literary grifters all over the country. I got, you know, TV deals coming, movie deals coming. Everybody was like, and I'm like, you know what? I've been writing about capitalism my whole fucking life. Like, you want to see a real grifter story? Look at the White House. Like, that's a grifter story. Like, I don't know. All of a sudden, I talk about a lady that, like, takes people for, their, for a couple thousand bucks to do some workshops, and it's, like, the sauciest thing that ever hit, when really, we've, we're sitting on the biggest grifter story of our time, which is capitalism, and that's what I've always written about, and I'll continue to write about it as long as it it t tends to uh, spawn economic violence on people. Well done. Well done. Um, can you, I don't know, I don't know nearly enough about your novel that's coming, so can you say something about the novel? And, and I know that you've been working at it as we tend to do with novels for a couple months now, so <laughs> can you, you can you say about bonbons and jammies? There's bonbons. I mean, and I, how you feel like having started it before Trump and now it's going to come out. Having started it when I was in the womb and now <laughs> approaching perimenopause and still in gestation. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I, uh, yeah, uh, we are doomed in my writing a book. I don't know. Um, what's interesting is it's true, I am kind of, um, so my narrator is this figure in Filipino folklore called the Aswang. <sighs> I'm looking at my kuya. Um, so, and the Aswang is, she's um, a vampire, and also though, like if, um, if any woman is suspicious, 
and maybe lives alone and maybe is an older woman, people might say, oh, you know, watch out for her. She's Aswang. And, um, uh, and people will, um, uh, and to this day, if you are accused of being Aswang, you could be murdered. And the, 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 the story is that she's kind of like, in some regions, she's like a vampire. In some regions, she sucks fetuses out of people at night. I mean, so anyways, that's my fun little narrator. And, um, <laughs> I, and, and um, along with this um, person in office, I am also experiencing um, perimenopause. And so, um, but I realized like I've tapped into this rage I swear it's hereditary. It's like some ancient rage. Like I have experienced rage recently that I have never experienced in my life. And it's also occurred to me that I am like at the most powerful time in my life right now. Mm -hmm. Like this is some powerful fucking shit. And like, I think that um, I can channel that oh, um, through my novel. I think that's maybe mm -hmm. how it's affected my novel. Mm -hmm. And I think both the president and um, the stage of my life uh, can help me like get that to my narrator. Mm -hmm. Nice. nice. We love our Melissa, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Natasha, so as previously mentioned, we just this week, right, announced that, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Just <laughs> sold her second novel to Dan, and um, we're thrilled with that. So um, how, do you feel like if Hillary had been elected, this is a novel that was written post-election or at least yeah. finished post-election for sure. Do you think if Hillary had won, you would have written a different novel? Or would you be editing it in a different way? No. <laughs> because it's different as a black woman in this country. Like we, I feel like we've been saying this for so long, like this shit is fucked up for black people. This shit, and it's always like, Oh, well, that officer just had a bad day. Or that political person had a bad, bad day, you know? So we're like, we've been saying this shit all along and we've been patted on the head, you know, by many people who are shocked as shit right now. Like, mm -hmm. how could this be? And we're like, hello. <laughs> yeah. We've been saying this shit for decades, yeah. right? For, so it's not surprising. It wouldn't change the book that I, that I felt that I needed to write. Um, but it's also made me want to, because I felt, I, I can't explain, I feel terrible that other people have to experience something that I've known all my life. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how else to explain. It's just like, no, you wouldn't want this, you wouldn't wish this kind of pain on anybody. Mm -hmm. The anxiety, the depression, the anger, the rage, all that stuff where there's, where we were classified as angry black woman. She has no reason to be so angry. And now everybody's fucking angry <laughs> and nobody's calling them angry, whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. So it was like this world that was veiled from everybody except for us. Mm -hmm. And now I just feel just in a, just this immense sense of empathy mm. for everybody who feels like, you know, the world is going down, you know, like Trump, Trumpocalypse, you know, mm -hmm. like it's always been that for me ever mm -hmm. since I can remember since my dad, since some man pulled a gun on my dad when we were very young, but my dad had a gun too. He's like, what's up, you know, on our <laughs> neighbor. So that was what it was like living in my neighborhood and burning crosses and things on our lawn when we moved where we moved. So it's not, a, none of this is a surprise to me, but I feel sorry. Um, so it makes me feel more compelled to become a bridge into two communities, because that's how I've grown up. I grew up in the Santa Clarita Valley. We were one of the first black families and dealing with all that. And we see our history so different. You know, um, Republicans or white people see it different than other people. And I wanna be a bridge, like for instance, um, and as a law professor, I want to do that. Like, how do you make this very complicated thing, just in, put it in layman's terms? So, for instance, I was having a discussion with somebody at the church that I go to. He was like, well, black people used to be Republicans. You know, they started out, they're Republicans, and then they changed in the 1950s. I was like, do you, you don't even understand what you're saying. Black people couldn't even vote till 1960. What are you talking about? To the late 1960s. But they are so sure that, you know, black people have been bamboozled by the Democratic Party, by liberals, and sort of they're like children that have to be sort of told, and they think that because they get benefits or something like that, that's why they're all on this side. You know, and there's no sense of what real history is. Like, we had no, 
we we didn't even have control. Our vote didn't. We didn't have a vote. What does it matter if we were Republican or Democrat or Independent or anything like that? So it's just the way that we frame the same facts are incorrect. So my goal with this with the new book, The Perishing, because my character is set in the 1930s. Can you tell us a little bit about? I don't want to interrupt your flow, but <laughs> I want to hear a little bit about the new and and a little yeah. bit about Grace, just in case anyone has missed the pleasure of that. So Grace is, um, is sort of recast. Um, it's, it spans about 27 years. So it's the end of American slavery through you know about 20 years after. Um, and it's told through the perspective of a runaway slave and her mother who passed away. Um, and it just sort of retells the story of slavery, like um, um, the Emancipation Proclamation. So one of the questions that I wanted to answer is people will say, you know, why wasn't there a big party, a celebration, when you know three million American slaves were released by the time the Second Emancipation Proclamation was signed? And most people think, oh, that was just the end of slavery, and it didn't happen like that. The Emancipation Proclamation was in the middle of the Civil War. It was two years in. There were still two more years of fighting, you know, until they were until the the war was actually over. So they couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't do anything. But the way that we tell this story, you know, there's a 13th Amendment, they're all free and they're all, you know, and it, does, and it changes the way that we view history if we actually know how everything happened. And that's why, in the, so this book that happens in the 1930s talks about how like South Central, for instance, here in LA, it's set in LA, how it used to be this, the most prosperous neighborhood for black people in the nation it was, you know, 30, almost 40% of black people own their homes, these huge homes, you know, all the, you know, all these really, and then what happened, it just went to crap. And the narrative that, for instance, the Republicans will tell is that, you know, it's because black people couldn't care for their stuff and it just went down. But it was actually the New Deal where no loans were going into this community at all. So even if you bought something, you couldn't improve it, where every other community in Los Angeles, they were, there was this huge influx of loans after the Great Depression. And so every other community was prospering because everybody had a mortgage, everybody, nobody owned. Um, so things like that, that was, so just recasting history that we think we know, we don't actually know how it happened. Mm -hmm. And it shows how it led to the riots and both of them, 60s and the 90s, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's what I wanna do as a lawyer and as a writer is to retell our history in a way that's more accurate to what actually happened. And also through the human story of a particular yeah. individual or individuals. Yeah, because even right now, as this shit is happening, we're all living our lives with our partners, with our families. We're going to work or, do it, or going to a bookstore. Like, I want that girl who's doing normal stuff because the stars of the show shouldn't be that shit show that's happening in the White House. It's us that have to live with this. It's Melissa telling these stories about capitalism and about this grifter and about the work that you've done with people who aren't being paid, who are working. And you know that was one of your stories that really affected me and how I lawyer. Um, the stories that we tell on TV, you know, all that is important. Dan's work, your work, you know. So yeah, I'm sorry. And all of you here, <laughs> damn it, you're here. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Apology <laughs> desired or required. Um, so, what do we think about the future of books? I mean, especially given what you're saying about, you know, there's this like kind of cross purpose, double edged sword of people want, people are more engaged politically, I think, now than a larger number of people. It's kind of what you're saying, too. Like, the light went on for a lot of people. And um, so people want more information. They want to know stuff. They're more willing to, I think, absorb political information. At the same time, everybody's fried and tired of it and wants some relief. So um, there's what you mentioned about the 24-hour news cycle and how that's affecting how we imbibe information. So what do we all think about? Um, and you know, you can include TV in that, certainly, writing for TV. Well, I was going to, I mean, I think the good or bad news because it's true that you get exhausted or I've heard people my husband was a public defender for a while and they talked to the public defender's office of uh, compassion fatigue mm -hmm. which I feel like we all have just mm -hmm. even on Facebook or it's like oh my god I don't know how many more things I can like feel like so then you can't be 
Anyway, I feel like because that light went on for better or worse, and like you say, a lot of people in America, it's been like for a long time. And I think your attitude's so beautiful because I know for a lot of my friends, it was like, yeah, welcome to the world that a lot of us have been living in. Suddenly, white women were like, what's happening? So, Hillary. <laughs> oh my God. It's happening. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's, no, this is the worst. I thought day you said ever. you got me. Yeah. You were lying. <laughs> you thought it just started. Yeah. Like, we, had, we were having like a party for our seven year old for the, all the girls her friends that were friends with her for, for the first female president. And then by the end, they were watching Finding Dory. And then I was too. Finding Dory. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, my, my thought is, I do think people are, at least, even those of us who were always feeling liberal, it's been an eye-opener in hopefully a good way that, like, suddenly that this light is on and you can't turn it off now. And so, all like, I think people would be more receptive to that uh, or just feel like, yeah, I need to know the real history in a way that we didn't feel like we used to because, like, the, a lot of us who were liberal thought I've always been you know, on the right side of things. And I think this election has made us feel like even if you're on the right side of things, there's a lot you don't know, still need to learn, still need to be sensitive to. So um, I think that's hopefully a good thing that people will be curious to know the truth, if the truth. Hmm. You were and I was thinking, well, uh, similar to what Cindy had said about um, television, I think there's two reasons to read, right? Either to escape or to connect. and. Um, and I, I do turn to books to connect to people. And I will always remember being in a group home and reading Temple of My Familiar mm. and thinking, you mean black women can live together like husband and wife? <laughs> it just blew my fucking mind. I was like, <laughs> I cannot believe that. And reading uh, Audrey Lord's um, you know, spelling of my name, and then I thought, like, the I got to just like go to Cuernavaca and eat mangoes, and that was <laughs> what it, what it meant to be a lesbian. Just go in Cuernavaca and eat mangoes and talk <laughs> shit. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, and um, and as Natasha has mentioned before, I mean, Sapphire's push. You know, so reading good. about Precious and reading about somebody oh, coming into literacy. And um, there's always going to be room for that. There's always, there's going to be a kid at home reading Natasha's book and going, yes, that was my neighborhood. Like, that was my experience. That's my, my neighborhood. That's my experience. Like, this is finally somebody is telling my story. Um, and so I think that there there's always going to be that 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 possibility for world connection mm -hmm. and, and human connection through books. I assume you're hoping for that. What are, you th what are your thoughts? And like from a business point of view also, like how does CounterPoint and what? Business. <laughs> you're making it rain over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you for leaving. Yeah, right. <laughs> Here's the best part of this. There's literally $4 in my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I don't want, I'd really love to, to listen to the to women on the panel tonight. Um, um, they have always existed. They will always exist. Um, books are beautiful, small containers of empathy, um, and they will always be there. So if you ever meet anyone who says, no, I don't read, don't waste your time. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, I mean, <laughs> because, because there's, there's a, there's a, uh, permeability that that books allow, mm. any kind of books, comic books, novels. Permeability between the that allows it. Yes, mm -hmm. and and if someone doesn't allow that, um, I just I, I think that those kind of conversations are ones I'm kind of not willing to have. Mm -hmm. Whoa, okay. Yeah, I would say everything that everybody has already said. Yeah. I think, I think that's it. I think books will always be here. Okay, well, we're going to take questions from you all now. So um, there's there's cheese and cookies for those of you. <laughs> You'll get a treat. <laughs> Anybody here a writer or a reader? You talk about, yeah. Comments? Yeah, yeah.
That's but just, just because, yes, absolutely, like, we want people to love words, and we want, you know, to love all of that, and the beauty, and the intricacy, and the legacy of it, but to really remember, like, that there's such an interesting opportunity, like, with people who don't really read. Mm-hmm. Well, but, true, and I didn't mean just within the cages of a book, it could be any sort of visual art, it could be any sort of visual medium, or any sort of narrative meeting, everything you've described are all kind of narratives which is basically what we all traffic in. Um, and, and the new ones that are coming out are certainly exciting. And but can be just as... I wish I could have been concise and just been like, so, like, how are you? I liked your <laughs> question better. You're like, edit, edit. in the back here? Him? Okay. Um, you know, younger people who are trying to keep up and can't keep up with that kind of um, media that's so many things going on at the same time. Like I have coworkers whose kids have been at like three or four schools because they're having, they're really having trouble sort of, you know, focusing. I'm seeing that more with a lot of young, I've been seeing younger kids who are really flourishing with like, you know, they can take in a whole lot, and I see a lot of kids who are just really stressed out, like they, that need to sort of have a linear read, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you can, if any of you have had that experience with people you talk with who, who are struggling with, you know, I mean, I'm thinking like, even like CNN or one of those channels, you watch and there's six things going on at the same time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that crawl. And it's almost like, is yeah. all that stimulation, mm-hmm. what are you Well, I, I can't read the way I used to read. I mean, it takes a lot to get me sunk into a book the way I used to get sunk into a book. I interface with reading so differently. Like I used to, and I, I mean, I still do, like, underline every, I like to underline everything, and, and then, but I also would, like, keep a journal where I would, like, then transcribe everything that I underlined, and, and it would really, like, become, like, part of my skin, you know? Um, and I, I also think that it's affected our marketplace a lot too. I mean, Meredith can speak to this. Like the the bar has risen. You know, now I have to also produce in multimedia. You know, as a journalist. I mean, I just got an email the other day from a, a really fabulous um, journal that I'm writing for, uh, Pacific Standard. They're just going to go all online, and you know, um, so they're not going to be in print. Everybody's just not not going to be in. It's print is too expensive. It's not sustainable, and then they can also um, afford to hire more editors. And there's more investigative, deep dive work. But the standard has gotten so high where I have to, you know, not only 
Now, to fact check everything, um, you hyperlink to the actual documents and like you put in the actual like voice testimony. You know, it's not like um, back in the day when people, <laughs> I, have you ever seen Shattering Glass? I think it's the most hilarious thing because yeah. like yeah. the way they would fact check is they would you'd be like, um, so these are my notes, and it says uh, on this day Bobby was on the corner, and I'm like, okay, those are that's the facts. So um, check it against the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, it's just like just because they call it in DC contemporaneous. Yeah, so since you wrote it, but um, so I don't know. I mean, I I definitely um, I don't my long I don't write in longhand as much as I would like to. I think that my handwriting is terrible as a result of um, the World Wide Web and uh, or the computer, really. And then, um, but I, and I don't interface with um, reading as closely as I used to, but also um, it does allow us to sort of engage with information in different ways that I think is really interesting. I think too, I think about newspapers, even though we're talking about books, I think the role of the newspaper now has changed so much. We, I was thinking about it when you were talking about things going online because print is too expensive and how people have canceled their newspaper, you know, newspaper paper subscriptions are going down so far. But when you think about what we know now that we wouldn't know if not for the New York Times and the Washington Post mm -hmm. and um, Politico mm -hmm. and so on, um, I don't know, it, it, it affects me, like I'm writing fiction right now and um, I remember being in this bookstore that Saturday night we were talking about earlier uh, the Saturday night after the election and it was like a mass funeral basically mm -hmm. and people the sort of subject of the conversation that night was can we still write I remember somebody actually raising his hand and saying can I still write novels mm -hmm. and um, you know, I, I just, I feel like for me, it's the, with what's going on now, it's becoming both more desirable and more difficult to write fiction than before. I feel like I should be tackling this topic or this topic the way I have in nonfiction in the past um, in a very explicit way, whereas um, I really love what you said about compassion. Um, and also what you said about your shows, you know, the shows you've worked on, that um, there is something reassuring and soothing about the universal, the human qualities, and there is something so fundamentally off right now about the extent to which we are registering human commonalities instead of differences. Um, so I'm not sure really what I'm saying, except that I'm doing the opposite thing from what I kind of think I should do, but I feel more like doing it than I think I ever have, which is fiction and telling us, you know, a story about politics through the way people are living their lives. Can I share something just about what, it just keeps coming back to my mind. When I was in Armenia, so I did the this thing with University of Iowa in the U.S. State Department in November, so a few months ago I was in Armenia. And while I was there, I had an interpreter who would follow me around. And I was in this room, there's like 200 people. And the interpreter, everything that I would say, would say it to the audience and vice versa. And I was on a panel like this. And I was with their national poet who was sitting next to me. And at one point, he was yelling at me. He stood up and he's yelling at me. Like, I'm sitting where Melissa yeah. is. He's sitting here and he's like, ah! And I'm looking at my interpreter in the audience like, what is he saying? <laughs> Tell me what he's saying right quick. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, just get it. She's listening to him so she can tell me what he's saying. But I remember, but I was so riled up that I was like, oh, they shouldn't have sent me. They shouldn't have, you know. This. But at the end of it, what he was saying was, he was so passionate about it, but he was talking about, he says, I don't understand what Americans mean by hope. You guys are all, you guys have this concept, you throw around this word hope, hope, hope. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And then I was like, it does mean something to us, it means that things can be different than they are right now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to always look like this. And when I think of books, I think that's exactly it. Every bit, even though we're struggling and we're wrestling with these issues, there's hope at the end of it. In the books that I write, I know Melissa and the vampire, there's still hope that we can save her, that she can live and be allowed to be who she is. And in our TV shows, there's some hope in it through understanding. And that's what makes us different, I think, as a country. 
as artists, as writers, is that we believe that we can be different. In Armenia, you know, there, you know, if your dad is a the carpet cleaner, you're the carpet cleaner. And it's just generations and generations and generations. And we have this opportunity to be somebody else. We can choose to be somebody else. And it's that we're holding on to this hope. I think if we lose it, that hopelessness that we feel that are that's taken so many people out, I think that that's that, that thing that that's not com that's that un-American thing, dare I say. Right. But there's some hope and understanding, and I believe in that, and I'm holding on to that little thread. But there's this, I had this really strange experience last week, I'll just say, I, so I went, first I was with my students in Tijuana. I took my students um, to um, this shelter where men stay who are deported, and then we, and we stopped at the border on the San Diego side before um, we went home and the wall is just like you know there's just like bars where you could see people's eyes like this and people come you can they let they say only 10 people at a time but you really it's kind of arbitrary you, you can go in and, and visit with people and touch fingers through a fence some people come every day just to learn English family members come to touch fingers through the fence but I went on to the beach and I saw, like, so the wall goes into the ocean, and I saw this man, and he's just, like, looking at me. And I'm just right here, and we've got the same air, and the same ocean, and the same sand, and, like, just his longing, like, I know that longing. I really know that longing. And just his longing, like, it hit me. It struck me so hard. And so many people in this world want so badly this thing that I have, this freedom that I have. And then I got on a plane and I went to DC and it's Thursday and I'm sitting in this nail salon and I'm watching this woman give this testimony in DC. And it's like, I want something that so many people in this country have. Like I had that same longing and I was looking through those same that same wall you know mm -hmm. so it's just like you know I think it's both like to I'm holding these both things all the time mm -hmm. I am the other mm -hmm. you know I am the other of privilege I mean I'm hyper aware of my privilege I've survived two brothers you know and I'm I'm the uh, but I'm also an American you know? that's right where like where some uh, rope that you needed someone to throw you is missing mm -hmm. and you have to like create the rope <laughs> or something because mm. I wrote a lot about uh, I like to write about things when I'm still in it and I wrote in my book mm. about marriage about infertility and it was kind of like while we were still just in it because I felt like there isn't anything that's kind of funny and honest or I also want to write about marriage in the way that I'd written about dating and I felt like people just kind of close ranks once you're a couple and you're not allowed to. But it was things I felt were missing that I wanted to have for myself but also wanted to provide for people as comfort. So, yeah. I think the rope is, I, I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that the rope is um, something you're trying to throw out as and for me, it's more like writing is the rope being thrown to me. Is that what you meant also? 
yeah, both I guess ways. A, yeah, like something to sort of save you or pull you out. Or yeah, like exactly. Maybe it should be a yeah. lightsaber. Should I rewrite that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the noisier, I mean, I'm a very extroverted person, and I, you know, <laughs> I know I've kept it so well no. in all these years. Um, but, um, you know, when the noise, the bigger the noise gets, I feel like the more I need the quiet. And even I, even though I like to write surrounded by people in as much physical proximity as possible, as, as the people who have been begged to come to my house and write with me know, um, it's still a solitary act and it's quiet. You cannot, you know, I can sometimes write with music going in my head or whatever, but basically it's a quieting. And I feel the need for that these days more than I ever have in my life. There's the comfort to me of writing, but there's also just forcing myself out of that CNN, uh, what is the thing called? The feed, you yeah. know? And just feeding myself in a way with hopes of feeding others um, through what's being done. Anyone else? Um, Linda, you had a question. Oh, um, I'm not sure if it was a question, but, but I almost answered your question when you, uh, on election night when you were like, should I be writing a novel? And I wanted to go, yes! Yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel like narratives have saved my life. I had a really hard childhood with a very, very depressed, mentally ill mother. And I feel like things are part, you know, it's, it's, they're an escape and they're in a connection and all of, all of the wonderful things that you just said. And, and, and I needed this tonight. This is the more depressing news today. So I'm looking forward to this connection and to talk about the narratives that we love. And so, uh, yeah, that's, it was more, I was answering your question. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It made me think of, of the idea of, oh, during the war, should we cut you know, arts programs? And he was like, well, then what are we fighting for? Mm -hmm. and, it, and as an activist and someone who keeps trying to do that part of the world, it's like, I need the deliciousness and, and the things that I'm fighting. Why am I fighting for this if we don't have the gorgeousness and the connection that we get from our narratives? Okay, gotta go. I'm going home to work on the novel. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thanks, Linda. Yeah, that's a good yeah, thing. Good point. Yeah. Um, um, I recently did a, a training with Al Gore on climate change, and I know that last Friday the Trump administration said that they now think that the temperature is going to rise by a trillion degrees by the year 2100, so there's nothing we can basically do past the point of no return, so they're going to keep doing the fossil fuels and whatever anyway, right? So to me, it just makes everything else seem <laughs> um, one of the things that I thought was interesting was at the Al Gore uh, convention, they were saying there's not much literature about climate change, and they actually called it a cry cry, and they were asking the reporters, it's so important that we please talk about it, can we please write about it, can we please bring it to the forefront, because it's like, I can't, I don't understand why people aren't just running to the streets screaming <laughs> at this point, it's just like, Well, I would ask you, like, have you, have what have you gotten from books or writing that has helped you stay being an activist, even when it seems so hopeless? Um, well, I think it was, it's, it was very helpful to hear that there were a whole lot of panels, and there were lots of very smart people, and you realize there's a lot of intelligent people working towards solutions, and there's a book called The Project Drawdown, which I guess was like on the number one list for You said that about the people creating solutions because I I started uh, this thing with some friends that was uh, we called it tea and empathy and it was tea like and a salon and every tea and empathy oh tea and empathy oh, that's and great. every two months somebody who was passionate about some cause would bring in like someone to speak and we would uh, just donate a little money but everybody would become aware of it and it just kind of got on our radar and it got us outside of our heads and 
So we did it. We did it for ten years. Ten years, actually, we had fifty mm. of them. Wow. And um, when it started, I thought, is this just going to be the most depressing thing we've ever done? Because every couple months, we'll hear about some horrible thing. But it was so inspiring because every time someone would speak about, you know, it was like somebody who had started an organization to research ALS because their sister had had it, and then they, you know, done this incredible work and. So it was comforting to feel like for every problem, there's a very dedicated group of people trying to do something and making a difference. Just one person mm -hmm. making a difference and maybe that's sort of slowly what it's gonna take. But it was nice to feel, rather than being overwhelmed, because it can be overwhelming, to be around other people who care and even about who care about other things was inspiring and helpful, hopeful. I think so, so I think what, you, what you're saying is that it's we're part of a community. You shouldn't feel like it's all, you know, the, you. you know, the, the world is falling down. <laughs> Even as our work is interconnected, one of the things that I get out of books and out of journalism is knowing how to speak, to talk about a problem and to understand, to see it more, you know, as a cube instead of a square. So even as I go into court, I know sometimes Melissa and I are there, she'll be there doing a serial killer, like writing a story, and then I'm there with the client, and then, you know, I'm like, what, what courtroom are you in, right? The tater tots. <laughs> tater tots. But it affects even the arguments that I make in a court for an immigrant. Um, who I know would get deported if they get a certain sentence or if I don't win that day. I know what it means because of other stories. So it's all these connections. Even though she's in journalism, I'm in law mainly, you know, in my everyday life. Or, or someone else is doing something. It's how we all connect to each other. And the moment we feel like it's all on us and that we are the thing, that's when it, it feels hopeless. If the moment I think that, I feel hopeless too. So it's connecting with other people that aren't necessarily. too that you know that um, one of the benefits of being older is that I remember the reason I became an activist was that I was watching little girls getting napalmed on TV every night and my parents thought that was quite appropriate and fine and I thought it wasn't and um, I remember the feeling of going to sleep every night as a 14 and 15 16 year old feeling like I at that point I somewhat naively and somewhat purely thought that that was being done in my name and with my parents' tax dollars and et cetera. I felt very connected to what, and somehow it seemed more intimate then because it was just the nightly news. There was one news show and on it you saw these things. Um, and that was kind of a portal that, uh, the Vietnam War was a portal. And what happened when we went out to demonstrate against it and I remember um, going to the, there was a, demonstration called Exercise the Pentagon. I don't know if any of you know of it, but it was a kind of little bit of hippy-dippy with a whole lot of <laughs> radical and um, mixed up together. And people came from all over the country and held hands and made a circle around the Pentagon. And um, when, uh, when I went to that, I was in high school and my then boyfriend and I organized busloads of kids from our public high school in New York to go down to DC. And when on the way down there, we had like three big busloads, like a lot of kids from our school really wanted to go. On the way down there, we had guitars and we were singing, you know, Bob Dylan songs and, you know, we were all happy and feeling like community and we're all good and this is the right thing to do. And then we got there and we got the shit kicked out of us. We got maced, we got beaten, we got dragged. I was wearing, I was wearing a, um, a little mini dress up mm, to my thighs, of course, <laughs> ever stylish, and my capizio boots, you know, dressing for the demonstration. It was my first one with peace symbols all over it. And um, I got, you know, some National Guardsman who was about my age grabbed me by the hands and pulled me through the mud trying to arrest me, and my friends were grabbing my capizio boots trying to keep me from getting arrested. And, you know, we came home that night on the bus. It was... Um, it, was, it had been a long day. Every single person in the bus had been hurt physically in some way. Many of us were maced and we were 
you know, and I just remember like looking around and I felt somewhat responsible because my boyfriend and I had organized this trip and I was looking around at these little kids. Some of them were 13 years old and they'd never been out of their neighborhoods before and they were sobbing and some of it was the mace and some of it was, we could not believe that our country would do this to us. We just couldn't believe it and it all came together. The girl with the napalm being, you know, bombed on her and um, we got off the bus at the Grand Concourse at three in the morning and I took the subway home and in the morning the New York Times had a big headlines, demonstrators attack National Guard. And my parents were reading the New York Times of course and I was still like bloodied and bruised and completely altered forever. And my parents started yelling at me for attacking the National Guard. And no matter what I said, they were pointing to the New York Times saying, no, this is, and I ran away from home. And you know, I'm just saying that I feel very similarly now with the news, um, but I felt that way once and I feel a lot of pride about the fact that I was part of a movement that eventually ended that war and eventually exposed a lot of what went into that war and was the justification for that war and the motivation for that war. So I guess I feel like the hopelessness for me, the, the thing that determines whether I'm hopeless or hopeful is about the people's reactions to what's happening more than it is to what's happening because what's actually happening has always been happening, as you say, and also is being made to happen by people who are not us. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem, that's capitalism. You know, there's the owners and the providers. And so I guess this is where I get my hope and the demonstration that I hope will break out spontaneously tomorrow when Kavanaugh gets um, put into office. So anyway, um, is there any other question? We have time for one more if somebody feels motivated. You only get cheese, oh yes. They call I. I heard Generation I Z. Z. Oh, Z. Z. Yeah. But like, you know, they're very open to to um, to what's happening, and, and we don't have to convince them that that climate change is a problem. The students I work with are like they're very aware of it. They understand what white fragility is, and they understand how to make arguments about it. Um, and so even though, you know, maybe they don't read like we read in the same way, um, I find them conscious and I'm, and I'm wondering, and not having trauma, although I mean I work with many like low-income immigrant students, so, but they're not having it. And, um, and, and they're starting to think that maybe they should start voting. But when you write about and for young people, I'm wondering as, as writers for TV um, and as writers of, of fiction and journalism, What's your thought about how you write about and for people who are just coming to engage this world? Hmm. For me, I don't, I don't want them to agree with me. I want them yeah. to be able to think. Yeah. I don't need them to vote because I say vote for this or to do this. I need them to think it through because the truth will get them to the right result anyway. We have a problem with being told through influencers or whatever, that's the world we're moving into. So they don't have to think, somebody's already told them what the answer is. I don't want my daughter to not like Trump because I've said these things. I'm saying, look at, you know, we're doing homeschool. I'm like, look at all these facts and I need you to draw a conclusion that based on your worldview or the worldview that I hope that you see the world in. So even if they know about white fragility or all these things, it's not enough for me as a writer. I need them to be able to think through the problem and to reach a result. So like for instance, as my law students, when I teach my law students, you know, it's only like a 30%, 40% bar pass rate. You can know the law, you can know it, have it memorized, but you will sit for that exam you've been studying for three or four years in law school and 60% of you will still fail the exam. Why is that? Because you can know 
answers but not know how to get there and still fail the exam. So I want my students to not only just pass the bar exam in California, I want them to pass this exam that we're doing in life. I need them to be able to think through, know all these facts, but now be able to apply them to the problem. And so that's what I think is, is, is the missing thing. We have substitutes for thinking, like influencers or whatever, they're substitutes, and we're losing something there. So when I write, I'm trying to, I know I'm, I get wordy, Dan will cut out all my, but I'm like helping them to think through the problem. You know, like, like the example with the Republican, who's like, you know, black people are Republicans. You know, so, and I don't know why they changed. It was because President Lincoln was a Republican and he freed the slaves. So they were all Republican and as they became aware and free, they realized that these, the new Republic don't actually have my interests. Yeah, so they're like, oh, you guys used to be Republican. You just don't know, that's all, you don't know. And now you're Democrats because there's benefits over there. And that's not, yeah, it's not, it's not true. They couldn't even vote. So what does it matter if they were Republican or Democrat? You know, so having these, you know, let's think through this problem and don't just trust it because I said it, even though I would like for you to agree with me, but that's not the point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I teach, uh, college I teach a class I uh, call on the human condition actually and um, my yeah <laughs> but the first time I What's taught <laughs> and we go and we it's an immersive journalism class and so we go and we witness people in deep moments of transition we go to men's central jail we go to Tijuana we go to um, I just took him to Skid Row um, so um, uh, but you know the first time I taught I was teaching a short fiction class and my student, I had a student who was on the spectrum. I didn't know he was on the spectrum. And um, his tick was, um, his answer to everything was to say, naked black African women in the bush. And I was like, what the fuck am I gonna do with this? And I went into my boss's office crying and she was like, Melissa, we are in La Jolla. This is when I taught UCSD. We are in La Jolla. Do not worry about teaching these people how to write. Just teach them how to be good people. Kathy Acker used to send them to the soup kitchen. And that was like the best. And I don't need to teach them how to be good people. They know how to be good people. So again, like it is my job to just, uh, so that's how I changed. I switched my whole teaching practice from that point on. And I do, I take them to consider if they're gonna be journalists, let's consider the I where that begins and ends. and and let's consider what it is to be a witness and what and talk about empathy and we start class off everybody by going around and sharing one thing that they're grateful for in this world and then we take it from there well that's great that's let's end on uh, grateful yeah. yeah thank you so much <laughs> and, um, I think we're gonna you've been listening to the skylight books author reading series don't forget you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.